If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Finding out that your family were slave owners is an uncomfortable truth to come to terms with. That's what journalist Alex Renton grapples with in his new book, Blood Legacy offering an unflinching account of his ancestors' involvement in the slave trade. The book also considers how best to deal with this unwanted inheritance and how the long-lasting impact of slavery still affects the world today. I spoke to Alex to find out more. Blood Legacy is its a broad exploration of the nature of the slave trade and also how we kind of come to terms with that legacy today. But it's also a personal story. It's also the story of your own family. So how did you first become aware of your family's connection to slavery? Yes, well, my, my grandfather um, was a quite well-known historian in the mid-20th century Britain. He died in 1970. His name was Sir James Ferguson, and he wrote quite a few books, many about Scottish history. And he was keeper of the national records of Scotland as well. It was his day job. And his own family had been... Uh, notable players in Scottish politics for three, four hundred years, members of parliament, judges, lawyers, soldiers. Uh, His hobby really was cataloguing their archive, which he stored in a basement uh, underneath the old house in Ayrshire, where my grandparents lived. And I was um, five years ago going through his his handwritten notes um, on some of these massive bundle of yellowing old papers. And I kept seeing the words Jamaica and Tobago coming up, which was completely new to me. And I asked my mother, who said a little embarrassed that her father had warned her and shown her some of the papers and said, yes, we were involved in slavery, like everyone else, he said, meaning other wealthy Scots families of that era. But... But he reassured her and said it was only briefly and we didn't make much money. So, I mean, I'm an investigative journalist. I, you know, was deeply intrigued. And I started a, a year-long process of reading through hundreds and hundreds of letters and accounts books and transcribing them. Some of the material you have to draw on is incredibly detailed. And we'll talk about that in a bit more detail later. As you say, your, your mother said slightly embarrassed that um, there was this connection. And a lot of people would probably want to hide this aspect of their family history. It's something to be ashamed of. Why did you want to bring it to light and put it out in the public domain? Well, I think as soon as I started reading the letters, I realised how important they were. And and not just in a historical sense, though though the accounts of setting up a plantation from scratch in Tobago is kind of unique in 1770, but also how important they were for today. Because the first thing that really shook me was just how like me, culturally and philosophically, my ancestors were. They clearly were from the the same era. They were highly educated people, you know, from an age that believed in the rights of man. They were moral. Uh, You know, and even the jokes in their letters between the brothers, you know, 
I get them. So it, it seems to me really interesting because in, in the sort of strange skewed history of British slavery that comes down, slave owners are sort of frothing psychopaths out of American movies. But these were members of the intelligentsia, liberals, liberal MPs. Um, and that seemed really important. And as I dug further, I realised the extent of my own ignorance about this history. Something there is really difficult to get your head around, which is this idea that they were moral, they were educated, and yet they did what we would now think of unspeakable crimes. Did you find anything in your family archive that helped you make sense of that paradox? Yes, I did. And it was one of the most shocking things, really. Um, and it is that, that as moral, educated people and Christians, they couldn't have enslaved other human beings. It's clearly impossible within their own class and culture and, and in wider Scottish society by the 1780s, 1770s, 1780s. So the Africans whom they bought, used up, discarded rather as you might farm animals, were they had to consider them less than human. And that became more and more apparent, particularly as the, the great arguments of the 1790s, you know, which they were a part of, um, began over the abolition of slavery. They just didn't believe that black people had the same rights as white. And this I now realise is you know, the part of the structures that enabled the British Empire, this, this systemic racism. Could you tell us a bit more about your family's involvement in the slave trade and what it consisted of? Sure. Um, so they, they were sort of late to the game in a way. I mean, by the 70, late 1760s, when they first got involved, really uh, a lot of neighbours and cousins and friends around them in, in Ayrshire and southwest Scotland were already involved. And they actually bought... Um, into a plantation which was already owned by uh, someone who lived five miles away in Scotland, uh, which was the Roselle Plantation in Jamaica. Uh, and that was a, a going sugar plantation, had been in existence for about 100 years and had 200, uh, between 170 and 200 enslaved uh, people on it. Um, at the same time, they sent the youngest son out, as was often the way, um, to Tobago um, to find new land and start from scratch. Um, and this is what he did. And the first part of the book tells his story, which is which is very immediate because he, the younger son, uh, was writing to his older brothers who were bankrolling the trip, telling them about the ups and downs, about his hopes and his fears. And so you get a very detailed account of what it's like to go basically into, I mean, I've been to the site, to uh, jungled um, Tobago, uh, on the north side of the island with a docket saying, you now own these 300 acres in a square and f and 70 uh, newly bought Africans and hacking, hacking a plantation out of that. So that plantation was a total disaster. My ancestor survived four years, which is about the average uh, lifespan of both black and white at that point. I died of dysentery like many others. And the plantation uh, never succeeded and, and eventually uh, was, was seized by the French when they took to the island of Tobago in 1781. Uh, but meanwhile, back in Jamaica, things went you know, pretty smoothly uh, and we owned that plantation right through till 1875. So 
the story there, and, and that comes through the extraordinarily detailed management letters sent by my uh, six times great uncle, Sir Adam Ferguson, to the Scottish managers out in Jamaica, at Roselle in the eastern uh, parish of Jamaica, um, uh, you know, literally uh, complaining about you know, the fact that a mule has died or that this has gone wrong or that has gone wrong. And, and those give you an, you know, an amazing nitty-gritty account of the business of running a plantation as an absentee owner. And back from the managers come stories of what happened. And they very rarely actually address the African people and their lives. You know, we hear about a lot of deaths, but... They're, but the Africans are farm animals. It's completely clear. They're even listed in 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 the in the inventories that I've seen, you know, below the children and the slaves with the values attached. Appears a six-year-old child appears to be worth slightly less than one horse. That's something that really struck me reading the book. The level of granular detail that you're able to get from these letters. Um, is incredible. And I think some of the incidental details, the throwaway details, are some of the most telling. I wonder if there's any of those that kind of stuck with you um, that you could share. Yes. I, the, I, mean, I mean, I think the, the day-to-day business of, of farming human beings for profit, I think there's a, there's a phrase from Hannah Arendt about the Second World War, about the, 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 the banality of evil, the accountancy of evil. You know, because it is plainly evil what they're doing, and it's evil not just in modern by modern standards. It's evil by their standards because hundreds of thousands of British people were campaigning against it. You see history reflected through the day to day management. So, in the 1790s, my my six times great uncle Sir Adam is sitting in London, member of Parliament, part of the Whig Party, which ostensibly backs abolition of slavery, though of course he doesn't of the slave trade, I should say, and. So Sir Adam gets briefings, or he's sitting in the House of Commons, and he sits down and writes to the manager back in Jamaica going, get down to Kingston and buy more young women and girls. Because he can see that if the abolition bill goes through, the price of enslaved people is going to rocket, and it's time to start breeding more. And you read this stuff and go, oh, that's quite clever. And then your other brain kicks in and goes, that is gruesome. This is, he's talking about breeding human beings as animals to make more profit and he's a christian so that stuff comes through other stuff which you know i found particularly upsetting i mean uh, the the business of selling children off particularly the children you know very profitable um uh, a lot of the the clearly the white workers on the plantation were at liberty to use exploit the black women sexually as they wished because all the children born on the plantation are, are almost all are described as mulatto which is a phrase that means of, of mixed race but then when these guys gets the white guys they're all scots get sacked or want to move on they quite often want to buy their own children and there's a lot of discussion from my ancestor going well you know it sounds a bit tough but i think the going price is an adult male even if the child's two years old so you get the managers going, well, I can't actually afford that. And they're again, deciding to buy two of their children, but not the mother and the other ones. So again, you get this sort of, in, in sort of business, capitalist business, running a corner shop kind of terms, this is a vision of unbelievable cruelty and brutality. 
It's quite difficult to wrap your head around, isn't it? And as you say, your um, ancestor, Sir Adam Ferguson, he had somebody out in Jamaica managing the plantation for him. Do you think the fact that he was however many miles away across oceans gave him an ability to have a kind of cognitive dissonance, I guess? I'm sure there's a sense of, dis- you know, that distance would have given something. I mean, but there's no excusing him. I mean, he was an active member of parliament and in his possessions, I found the 1791, I think that's the date, the first big parliamentary report into the cruelties of slavery and the slave trade, you know, which really spurred the abolition movement commissioned by the government. You know, he'd read it, you know, it's well thumbed. He knew what was going on because there are first-hand accounts there. But but more than that, there is an extraordinary episode, which really is unique, I think, in the history of um, British slavery. The senior preferred enslaved person on the plantation um, a doc, like he's called Dr. Caesar, meaning he's a vet and does some, some doctoring as well, um, runs away because his wife and he and his children have been whipped and, mil- and mistreated. And he goes, you know, as any employee might, um, to seek justice from the boss. And he gets to Kingston, gets himself, we don't know quite how, but on board a, a ship, gets all the way to London, and he turns up on Sir Adam's doorstep in February, in winter of 1781, uh, with a document in which he's very carefully dictated his complaint, uh, asking for his his boss to intervene and to look after him. And it, it's an amazing, you know, it, it is one of the only sort of raw first-hand accounts of life life as a, under British slavery. But it's also really moving because there's a sense of natural justice. I mean, that however uneducated this man, Augustus Thompson, he renamed himself, you know, had arrived in, in Britain to seek what every man should be able to have and every person. The story doesn't end well, I have to say, because while he... In London, um, Augustus Thompson would not have been a slave. It was by then impossible to be enslaved in Britain. Um, My ancestor persuaded him to go back to Jamaica by promising him that he wouldn't be punished and so long as he went back and did his duty and went back to the plantation. And incredibly, Thompson agrees to do this, probably because his wife and children and mother are still back on the plantation. As soon as Thompson was on board ship uh, sailing back, Sir Adam writes to the manager in Jamaica going, I've, I've done my job. I've got him to go back to you. Now do what you like with him. You know, if, he, if he's a threat, you know, then feel free to, to execute him or you know, have him tried. So, so, so I think, I mean, the, the point of that story today is Sir Adam was an MP, an honourable man. His reputation would be very important to him. But giving his word of honour to a black man was meaningless. It's like giving it to a horse. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Lives in this country and in Caribbean are still impaired by the inherited damage done through the brutality of the generations that went before. How was your family involved in the debate around the end of the slave trade? So by the 1820s, my family still part of the elite, part of the ruling structure of the country. They're no, no longer actual members of parliament. My Renton ancestor uh, in Edinburgh, which is where I live now, uh, a, a merchant shopkeeper's uh, wife, Agnes, uh, was 
I'm proud to say, one of the founding uh, members of the Edinburgh Ladies' Society for the Abolition of the Slave Trade. So I like to think of her in the streets of Edinburgh meeting my Ferguson ancestors, who were also living in the city, uh, waving a leaflet under their noses. And the leaflet would have said, uh, as we know... um, the tea you're drinking, the sugar in the tea you're drinking is 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 contaminated with the blood of Africans. What are you going to do about it? It was a pretty pretty furious debate, as it as it so it should have been. But meanwhile, those same ancestors who she might have met in the street were uh, Sir Charles Dalrymple Ferguson, who's my three times grandfather, um, great grandfather. Uh, was a uh, a member of the Assembly of the Kirk of Scotland, the governing body of the church. Um, he was a, studying sciences and law in Edinburgh and going to dining and drinking clubs. And his diaries reveal a little bit about he was involved in discussions about the future of slavery. But when and but he would also have been very happy because he knew that by the time the bill was. Uh, going to Parliament in 1833, it was clear that a huge amount of compensation was going to have to be paid to the slave owners to get the votes in Parliament, basically compensating them per head of slaves they owned. So he rather cynically uh, and his partner in the plantation in Jamaica went out and bought 200 more slaves two years before abolition in order to profit from the compensation money, brought them from a neighbouring plantation. Um, and then when he got the money, which is over a million pounds in today's uh, t- today's um, terms, he spent it not on, um, as you might imagine, on improving the lives or building a school or something for the for the uh, enslaved, newly freed people on his plantation in Jamaica. He spent it on schools, a lot of it on schools and uh, churches uh, for the poor fishermen of East Lothian near where he lived, but not a penny for anyone in Jamaica. And the slaves had, and the newly freed people did not get any compensation at all. A pittance was put into education money, no land, and he laid the seeds for the poverty, the terrible poverty that Jamaica and some of the other islands would would endure really right through to the end of the 19th century. So the hypocrisy went on um, and the racism went on as far as I can see it, and laid the seeds for what we experience today. You have all this incredible detail, but was there anything that wasn't there in the archive? Were there any notable omissions that were were telling in themselves? Well, I mean, the huge thing you're aware of throughout is you're trying to tell an honest story of this, and you don't have the stories of those who were enslaved. So I know a huge amount about my, my ancestors' Um, over four generations of that they owned, owned enslaved people, but nothing about the thousand or more people who they bought and and all their descendants, because you know of the, this archive, like so many others, has been sequestered all these years, and and also in a more wide sense, because I re- began to realise that the history I had been taught in my incredibly expensive education had just missed out on it, and and. In the most extraordinary way, I mean, I think most Americans, you know, with any education, know when slavery ended in in America, end of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln, and so on. Uh, it only it, it, the British only ended it in the Caribbean thirty years earlier, but nobody knows, and nobody knows that far from being the good guys of 
in inventing abolition of slavery, um, which is what I was taught, um, we were some of the worst slavers in terms of numbers of people and how we treated the enslaved in the whole of Europe. Um, and we didn't actually invent abolition of slavery either because several nations and some American states had done it before us. So what the chief thing I learned, and I learned it more and more as I got, as I, when I went to Jamaica and Tobago to go to the sites where we'd enslaved people, was that while I didn't feel shame about the past, because that would be ridiculous, I did have to be ashamed about how I didn't know what we'd done the 3.25 million people that the British, African people that the British transported across the Atlantic. And it also kind of wiped out how important that information is today, particularly to the descendants of the enslaved. Well, I wanted to ask you about your trips to Tobago and Jamaica. What kind of response did you get from people when you said, you know, I'm here to research my, my family history, they were slave owners? Well, I have to say, I started that very tentatively. And I, I and then... My first encounter, which was literally with um, some people in Bloody Bay in Tobago, which is where the Ferguson plantation was, uh, and I realised, you know, my level of interest clearly was beyond a tourist, and I had to fess up, you know, and I, and I actually took out one of the a photocopy of one of the big uh, accounts book inventories to, to, you know, so I could talk through the names of the people who'd been enslaved on the land where we were standing two hundred and fifty years earlier, and. Um, Junior Thomas, the local resident and tour guide who showed me around and, and others were in, in, incredibly interested, generous, kind, pleased that I was there. They thought it was very important. And, and the same happened in at Roselle in Jamaica in St. Thomas Parish near Mirant Bay, uh, where you know I, I, I found myself standing you know, in front of the, the great house, the house where the white employees had lived and talking to the man who lives in it now. And um, I think what I learned from that is just how much slavery still affects lives there, because I asked every single person I met that question, how, you know, what it did for them today. And the key answer was about colorism, the system of the lighter your skin, the, the better a job you get, which was clearly happening as a way that the British ruled the slave colonies, and it still affects lives every day today, and is of course totally unfair and ridiculous. Um, and a sense also of fondness for Britain, and, and a kind of in, incomprehension about why we deny the deny slavery and are unwilling to talk about the fact, or even acknowledge the fact that there are legacies of it that still affect our society and Caribbean societies. I think that it's fair to say that there is a certain reluctance to hear these stories in some aspects of British society. So I was talking to the author Emma Dabry, who, who's uh, of Irish and uh, uh, African origins, uh, yesterday uh, about exactly this phenomenon, about the denialism and the whataboutery, as we tend to call it. Um, and and I've, I've heard about this. I hadn't really encountered it until I published this book six weeks ago. And I've had an astonishing amount of angry, abusive um, mail. It led me to realise that, that there's a huge constituency out there, and they're my constituency, they're people like me, who are terrified of having the myth of empire, the foundational 
structure of what they think about themselves and their Britishness in any way questioned. And this was a surprise. I mean, I thought, you know, the, the, that our, our educations had been inadequate was kind of obvious and that um, enlarging history when new material comes up, and I've largely provided new material to it, is a matter for us all to be intrigued by and take action on if it's important. But quite the opposite seems true. I mean, the, the mainstream reaction in middle-of-the-road newspapers to my book has been fury, I'd say. You've uncovered all of this material about your ancestors. Where does that leave you, in a sense? What next? The, the good side of the reaction to, to the book so far is I am hearing, uh, I'm getting a few emails from people going, hold on, I, I, you know, we've got a genealogist in the family and we have done a bit of research on this. We've been on the University College London Legacies of British Slavery database and there we are. And turns out we got a pile of money in 1836 as well at the end of slavery. What do you think we should do? So, so there are there's some basics there. I mean, uh, you know, it is much easier than it has been at any time in history to research your own history um, and all sorts of ways of doing it. The people who are the descendants of, slave, of enslaved people are, in general, far worse off than people like me who are no longer wealthy because of slavery, but I certainly inherited the privilege uh, of slavery and, and a, a self-belief and self-confidence. The only, the least I can do uh, as a descendant of all this is um, voice my concern and try and offer offer my help to counter these things. In a practical way, in a very small way, uh, you know, my family and, and others are uh, giving money to educational uh, institutions and charities dealing with youth development in Britain and in Jamaica, and, and I hope Tobago soon as well. But that's very small. I think we should be talking about, in the big picture, about reparations and reconciliation with people in the Caribbean and from the Caribbean who share an awful lot of our DNA. So reparations are quite a contentious issue, as I'm sure you're very aware. And some people would say that you, for example, are not responsible for the crimes of your ancestors. Why not move on from the past and let sleeping dogs lie? What would your response to that be? Well, I think the dog isn't sleeping. I mean, it's... You know, it seems to me screamingly obvious from that. We didn't sell the Jamaica plantation until 1875. And it, it, it was very, only two miles from one of the most awful um, post-emancipation uh, colonial uh, catastrophes, which is the British armies and the, and the Jamaican, white Jamaicans' savage retaliation to the, the land uh, riots of 1865, the Morant Bay War. So it enables you to tell the story of just how how we neglected uh, the people of the Caribbean sugar colonies um, after emancipation, after we'd given them their freedom, in quote marks, um, and and which really takes you up to independence today. And so this story is by no means over. You know, when, when the whataboutists go, well, you know, and I get this all the time, you know, would you have me ring the Italian embassy and demand reparations for the Romans raping people in Britain? You go, no, of course I wouldn't, because it isn't, doesn't materially affect our lives today. But there's a host of evidence around to tell us that racism today was engendered and encouraged by the systems of the enslavers, because it made what, as we've already said, what they did possible. 
and and also that that lives in this country and in Caribbean are still impaired by the inherited damage done through the brutality of the generations that went before. That was Alex Renton. His book, Blood Legacy, Reckoning with a Family's Story of Slavery, is out now, published by Canongate. If you found my conversation with Alex interesting, then I'd recommend checking out a podcast that I recorded back in February 2021 with Patrick Scanlon on slavery's connections to the British Empire. Just search for How Slavery Fueled the British Empire in your podcast feed or on historyextra.com to bring that up. And if you enjoyed this podcast, then please do leave us a review or tell your friends about us. It really helps to spread the word. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us next on Friday when Michael Burley will be speaking about the history of assassinations. (laughs) 